When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is in the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me, when the Lord put me into your hands. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to be uh, together, to be uh, before your word now. Thank you for the power your word has to transform lives. God, we are amazed time and time again uh, of what you, the grace you continue to show us and your willingness uh, to continue to speak to us, to continue to lead us. God, we, we confess our hearts are so easily um, persuaded to chase after lesser things. And so, God, we thank you for your patience, for your mercy, uh, that we, uh, despite all our sins, God, you keep pursuing us and you keep uh, drawing us back to to yourself. Lord, we pray that would be true today, uh, that as we see um, your word and the power it has in our lives, God, we pray that you would use it to transform us by your grace, by your kindness. Bless the time we share in Christ's name. Amen. I want to, uh, to ask you to think about where you lived when you first, like when you were born, like the house that you lived in when you were born. And I want you to think about how far away that is from where you are right now. So raise of hands, who is in a different state than where they were born, okay? Uh, Who is, keep your hands up, who is more than, who's, even if you're in the same state, three hours away from where you were born? Two hours away. Keep, keep your hand up. Uh, if you're more than, are you more than 30 minutes away from where you were born? More than 15 minutes away? All right, hands down. Anybody within 15 minutes of where you were born? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right. 
I think I know at least one person who's living in the house. Am I not mistaken? Living where, where you were born? But most of us have moved at Lynn. He's moved too, but he's now back in his parents' house. Is, it, is anybody, anybody else? You're, you're pretty close. Some of you are pretty close. Most of us know the experience of it moving at least once, right? You know this experience of you've got home, this is home, and then you move, and this is now new home, and how jarring that can be. It can be really good. It can be a blessing. Or it can be, you know, not so good. It can be, you know, there can be quite a, a transition there. I, in my lifetime, uh, quick thinking yesterday, I came up with, I've lived in three different states, but seven different zip codes, and also spent a little bit of time uh, outside the country, just temporarily. Uh, but I imagine for all of us, whether it's just a short trip or a permanent move, we, we know the feeling of, of kind of being uh, disoriented, uh, of being a, a away from home, and the jar that is to kind of kind of reestablish a new normal. And that can be unsettling. It can make us uncertain, even fearful, a little bit worried. And I think that, that, that sense of being away from home happens not just physically, not just physically when we, we literally move somewhere or travel somewhere, but there can be events in our lives that feel like there is now a new normal. Some, some bridge has been crossed and you're not going back to the way things were. So something like a marriage, you know, that this is going to be a turning point in your life or a child being born or maybe losing a loved one or maybe starting a new career or, or being in a new phase, a new season that, that maybe you're, you physically, your address is still the same, but you're, you're in a new home in the sense of a new normal, a new time in life. Any change, whether good or bad, can feel like a loss and a gain or a change of some kind. As we're, we're, we're leaving an old home and establishing a new home. The Bible tells us that this world is not our forever home. In the sense that we have a citizenship, Philippians 3.20 tells us, our citizenship, our permanent residence, where we, we ultimately have our, our passport from, is not of this world. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So since this is not our home, other places in the Bible, like 1 Peter 2.12, calls us sojourners and exiles. We are, we are passing through, so to speak, in this world on our way to our ultimate home. Ever since Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, we have been exiles. We have been away from the, the way we were created to be, and we have been reestablishing and seeking a permanent home. We've been sojourners, and so this... This theme of exile, of leaving one home and traveling on our way to a new home comes up over and over again in the Bible, which is great comfort to us because we live most of our lives in a season of exile. Even if for a little while you get used to a new normal, something happens. And again, you are trying to figure out what the newest new normal is going to be. Adam and Eve were exiles when they left the Garden of Eden. Joseph is an exile who goes down to Egypt and he is established there. His whole family comes as exiles to Egypt and then they dwell there and live, but they become exiles within their own land of Egypt because they are enslaved. And then eventually after 400 years, they are sent out a new generation that the only home they knew was, was Egypt. Now they are exiles wandering through the desert before they ever get to the promised land. Over and over again, this happens. Take Daniel. He is living in Babylon as an exile pulled out of, from, from Israel, as so many people were that, in that uh, season in the Bible, exiles living in Babylon. Over and over again, the season of exile comes up. 
And there's so much to be learned from those moments. The question is not if you live in exile, but how you live in exile. Because we live like this, passing through this time of earth. How do you live? How do you remain faithful in exile? As I was mapping out, uh, uh, trying to, to fit all of First and Second Samuel in, in a relatively short amount of time, because uh, you could spend forever here, I decided to take all of chapter of, of Psalm of Psalm of First Samuel twenty one through thirty. I know your bulletin says thirty one. I'm going to save that one for next week with the next section. But twenty one through thirty, all this together, because this is David's time of exile. This is where David is living on the run. And in one of the, the, my study Bibles uh, has a, a little map. We don't know exactly where every place is, but they counted 16 different places that he either stayed or lived or fought or whatever during this period, probably of somewhere between five and 10 years, maybe eight years or so of living in exile on the run out for his life. Last Sunday, we saw where King Saul, who rec- recognized that this one who is serving in his, his, uh, his household would be the next anointed king. And although David was happy just to serve Saul and let Saul's reign continue on, Saul was not happy with that, that his son was not going to be the next king. And so Saul begins to try to kill David. And after three times of throwing his spear at David, David realizes he's got to get out of there. And so last week where we left off was he was leaving town. And from that point forward, David lived his life on the run until Saul's death. David lived in exile. By looking at this period in David's life, I want to ask what it looks like for us as exiles to live faithful to the Lord. I wonder if you can, you can recognize that, that sense of living in exile and what that looks like. Maybe you physically have felt that way. If not, I hope spiritually you recognize the exile that we're in as sojourners in the world. Maybe you especially felt that in times of transition or time of hardship, times of suffering, where you recognize this is not my ultimate home. This, this, there's, there's, I have a longing. C.S. Lewis talks about a, a longing in our hearts that we can tell if nothing in this world can satisfy that longing, I must be made for something more. I'm, long, I'm made for something greater, a world that is beyond this world. And so we live as exiles. Maybe you feel that uh, in our culture. In many ways, our culture is shifting as much as the other parts of the world, the Western world, West, Western Europe and different parts of our country are becoming more and more secular. So as Christians, we can feel more and more marginalized by society, more and more like exiles within our own culture. And just as a side note, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The church many times flourishes better as it's being marginalized than it does when it's at the central. But it can be uncomfortable. It can be jarring to try to live in a way that's different than the rest of the culture is pulling us to live. So what does it look like for us to be faithful in this period of exiles, as, as exiles? We know that God uh, has told David what's going to come in the future. He will be king. But God did not fill in all the details uh, between here and there. And that can be uncomfortable. That's where we live. We know where the end of the story is. Jesus is coming back. And everybody who knows Jesus, it's going to be amazing. We're going to be with him. That's the end of the story. David's going to be king. It's going to be good eventually. But between here and there, there's a period of exile. Our passage starts in chapter 21, but I want to jump ahead to verse to chapter 24 where Mary just read for us so that we can see this. I think this is one of the key moments. We'll fill in the backstory in just a minute. 
But in chapter 24, David has been on the run for, for quite some time now. And as he's on the run, he's got about 600 men or so that have gathered to him that are supporting him and trying to help him. And Saul gets a tip of where, where David is. And so he gathers together an army of 3,000 men chasing after David. Malicious, angry, jealous Saul plus 3,000 men against little, inexperienced, on-the-run David and 600 men. What could go wrong, right? So David is hiding, and the most bizarre, crazy thing happens. They are hiding in a cave, deep in the innermost parts of a cave. And it just so happens that Saul escapes or or, uh, separates himself from his 3,000 men to go and use the restroom in a cave. You can't make these things up, right? It just so happens to be the exact same cave where David and his men are hiding. And can't you just picture those 600 men trying not to laugh? Like, they're like, he's chasing us, 3,000 men, and there he is using the restroom. Like, you've, I can't resist. You've literally caught him with his pants down. I resisted writing that, and I didn't resist saying it. Sorry. If you're, if you're David's men, if you're David's men, they look at him and say, God is good. God has delivered us. God has brought us the salvation. We were, long, we were longing for a way to escape this evil, wicked man, Saul, and God has done it. David, you're the man. You go for it. You take control here. David stood up, pulls out his sword, and goes to where Saul's robe is. And he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and he returns back to his men. And you may have read his heart was struck. He was convicted by that. And you're like, wait a second, why is he convicted? Last week we saw where Jonathan took his robe off and gave it to David. It's a symbol. The robe is a symbol of the kingdom. So while David did not take his life, David did symbolically say, your your kingdom, your kingship is being cut off and it's in my hand now. So Saul was convicted. I mean, David was convicted about that, but he knew that he resisted the greater temptation of killing Saul. So what's going on there? Why would David resist this temptation? I think the lesson for us, as we too are exiles in this world, longing for the established, the fully, fully coming kingdom, Jesus' reign is established, but it has not been fully, fully finished on this world. As we're longing for that and waiting for that, while we're waiting, we're called to practice righteousness. Practice righteousness. Live as holy people. Live in the way that God called us to live, not contrary to his commands. David knew that to kill the Lord's anointed, to kill the the one who is the king over Israel, would be to go against God's command. The word anointed is the word in Hebrew, Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah, which is in Greek is Christ. This is the one who is the anointed one right now. He's wicked. He's evil. He's doing all kinds of terrible things. But God has put him as king. And David said, I will not kill the Lord's anointed. This would be to go against God's commands. Two sins don't make right, right? Just because he sins doesn't mean he, that, just because Saul sinned doesn't mean David has the right to sin against him. Saul recognizes what could have just happened. And he says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you only 
evil. David practiced righteousness. He was faithful. He was holy, even in the middle of exile, even while running for his life. Not everyone around him was willing to, to um, overlook in, uh, sin in this case, uh, but they were encouraging him. Or, or not everybody was, was willing to, to say, you should, you should not have killed him, but they're encouraging him in the Lord. They thought it was an opportunity. Uh, they thought it was an opportunity for David to, to take this man's life. They thought that's what the Lord is doing here. But what actually it seems like the Lord is doing is he's testing David. God did set this up, but not as a way for David to take Saul's life, as a way, a way for us to see and for David to see his own character in the middle of the suffering. I wasn't in the 930 Bible study classes this morning, but I know they were in 1 Peter 1. And in 1 Peter 1, we read that God has caused us to be born again. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus for your salvation, what has happened is God has taken your, your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He has put the Spirit of God inside of you. You are now alive. You have new birth in Christ. And because of that, 1 Peter continues in verse 14, it says, Do not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy. As Christians, if we know the Lord, if God is in us, we're called to, for that, for His Spirit inside of us, we're just called to let that bear fruit. Let God bear fruit in our life. We should not be following the passions of the world. We should be practicing holiness and righteousness. This is not moralism. This is not saving ourselves by our own actions. It is because the Spirit is in me, the Spirit should be flowing through me in a way that bears fruit for the kingdom of God. Over and over again, we read this connection in the Bible. God has saved you. Now let that bear fruit in your life. David's story in exile is the same. Similar to what Peter did, but in story. Peter wrote it as a letter. David's living it as a story. God has anointed David. He's called him out of the sheep pasture. He's called him into his service. And now as the soon-to-be king, the question is, will he live like the king he's called to be? He already has the status of anointed one. David has already given, been given, this is your title. This is what's coming. You are the king. Now, will you live like it? Will you live like a man after God's own heart as God intended for you to be? You have the, you have the status. You have the status of Christian. Will you live like a Christian? That's the challenge in exile. Even when everyone else around you would say, it's okay to act this way. Even when all the culture around you says, it's okay to be this way, will you be different Will you be distinct from the culture? Will you be holy? Christians are called to be people of integrity, of honesty, of character. Even when it seems like the world would say, ah, the ends will justify the means, or, or what you're doing is just old school, or whatever else it may be. As Christians, our standing before God is not based on those decisions we make, but because our standing before God is righteous, God calls us to act righteous. We are clothed in the holiness of Christ. Now walk in it. That's the picture of Christian living. We live in a time where the, the culture's dif- definition of morality in many ways is different than the Bible's definition of holiness. If you just go by what's moral in our culture, you're not going to just stumble upon living a Christian holy life. They are not the same thing in our world. Culture says love is love and sex is for when you love people. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. It says sex is only for marriage. That's different than our culture says. 
The culture says, speak your mind and tell it like it is. We respect you for just shooting us straight. The Bible tells us, Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up. Words that are shot straight, but meant for tearing down are not holy words. That's different from the morality of our culture. Every generation probably, probably has to, a different version of this, of, of putting forth what's culture say and what's the Bible say. And we come back over and over again and say the Spirit of God should be flowing through us in such a way that our lives look more like the Bible than the culture. I'm sure every generation has their version of hypocrisy and people who go to church and don't seem to look like it. And every generation has their time of church leaders who stumble and fall. And so we plead and pray for one another that we would not be hypocrites, that we would not stumble. We would be people who are held accountable, who are holy, who are righteous. I plead for your prayers for us as leaders. I plead that you would be people of holiness so that we represent the kingdom of God. We display Christ-like character to the world around us. David's righteous decision not to kill King Saul was especially challenging given what had led up to that moment. If you go back to chapter 21, it tells of him stopping by a priest's, uh, stopping by this one village and talking to the priest, and the priest giving him and the with, those with him bread and the sword of Goliath. When Saul hears that David had been helped by that priest and by that village, he goes to that village, questions them, and then kills that priest and 84 other priests and doesn't stop there, but kills everybody in the whole village. He kills the entire village for helping David. Chapter 23 contrasts how wicked Saul is with, G- with David's willingness to sacrifice himself. He hears of a village that's being attacked by the Philistines. And even though he's in hiding and he's trying his best to not be found out by Saul, he willingly goes, they go and they rescue this town from being, uh, being destroyed by the Philistines, knowing that by having this big battle, Saul would know exactly where he is. And yet he goes anyway. Saul kills a whole village. David rescues a whole village. And sure enough, Saul hears about it, and David has to flee again into the wilderness. Saul is clearly determined to kill David and willing to risk anything, to willing to kill anyone, which makes David's willingness not to kill Saul all the more astounding. At the end of chapter 24, we, the end of that episode in the cave, verse 22, it says that Saul went home. So he stopped pursuing David right after, Saul, right after David spared his life for a little while. But just two chapters later, a town sends word back to Saul and says, we know where David is. Come and get him. Come and get him. This time, Saul said, no, 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 he's more righteous than me. I'm not pursuing him anymore. No, he didn't. No, he didn't say that. He gets up, mounts his troops again, and begins chasing after David once more. This time, David has another opportunity to kill Saul. David spies out where he is and knows where they're sleeping. And so David and one other soldier sneak into their camp and comes into Saul's tent while he's sleeping and In the ground, right by Saul's head while he's asleep, is Saul's spear. And you have to know that David knew that was his spear for more than one reason. It's beside his head, and Saul has flung that at David's head three times. So David knows that's that's his spear. And he and a soldier are standing. I mean, these are the things movies are made of, right? They're standing in the tent. 
There's the guy asleep, and his spear is right there. And his sold, the soldier next to him says, hey, I'm going to read it to you because I'll, I'll embellish. Uh, he says, now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I love that. Just give me one shot, David. Just give me one shot. Just, I'll, just, I'll just pin him and I'll walk away. I'll pin him and walk away. David says, no, no, no. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the king. His life's in God's hands, not ours. So they took the spear and a water jar from his tent and sneak out of the camp and go up on a hill a little ways away from him. And they call out to Saul and again let him know they have spared his life once more. Can, can you imagine letting Saul go the second time? Like, I, I was just here. I let you go, Saul. I could have killed you. You left and you came back to chase me once more. Have you ever told God, yeah, I know I obeyed you last time. I, I know last time I did what was right. But look where that got me. I did the right thing and it didn't help me. It didn't make my life any better. Maybe it made it worse. Maybe it made it harder. Maybe it, maybe it made it more difficult. Have you ever said, God, this, this whole idea of doing it the right way, is, it's not paying off for me. I obeyed you once. Why would I obey you again? Treating God that way is treating God as if we are consumers. We are buying comfort from God with our good deeds. We're exchanging one thing for another. We are consumers. That's the idea. When we come to God and we expect Him to repay us good things before our good actions. God is not into a consumer relationship with you and me. He is into a covenantal relationship. He wants to be your father. You don't buy things from your father with your good deeds. You love him. He disciplines you. He, shape, he wants you to, to grow. If he's a good father, he wants you to grow you to be more like Christ. But you don't, you don't buy things from your dad. He's not a consu- God, God's not a cons- We're not in a consumer relationship with him. God is far less concerned with your comfort and status and wealth. And he is far more concerned with your heart and your character and your integrity. God is not into you doing good things so that things get better and easier for you. He's into you doing good things so that your heart looks more like Jesus. You begin to reflect Christ in the world. And if it takes two tests, so be it. If it takes a hundred tests, so be it. God has much bigger goals than just our own comfort. Surely the soldier with David was thinking, there's only two options here, David. Either you kill him now. We're not going to get another. We got two chances, David. We're not going to get another chance. Either you kill him now or he's going to kill you later. And we pigeonhole God into decisions like that, don't we? We say, God, here's, here's the two things. Either it's going to be this way or this way. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And in my industry, in my field of work, in my family, this, this is the way things go. It's either this way or this way. And I tried this way and it didn't work, so I'm going this way this time, God. We, we, we boil God down. As if he's, he's required to fit his, all his plans in my little box I can draw. Here's the decisions. God is not limited to the two options we can come up with. David was willing to obey even up to the point of it costing him his life. He recognized his life is on the line here. Saul is still pursuing him. And yet he's not going to do the, the immoral thing by taking Saul's life. He's willing to pay that price. What's the cost we're unwilling to pay to do the right thing? Are we willing to do the right thing even if it costs us a lot? I, I appreciate 
that the Bible does not whitewash our heroes. This is one of the ways we know the Bible is authentic and real, is that if you were making these stories up, you'd cover over some of their blemishes. David, we know, if you know David's story, it's not going to go well all the way to the end here. He's going to have some pretty major mess-ups. But even in the middle of this story, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. In the middle of the two times that David does not kill Saul, chapter 24 and chapter 26, we have a different kind of temptation that, Saul, that David faces in chapter 25. The details are a little bit complex, so I'll try to summarize it here quickly. And it's that uh, David and the militia have been out in the wilderness near a wealthy man's property. The wealthy man's name is Nabal. And from reading these chapters, you can get the sense of what the culture was like at the time. At any given moment, some militant group is going to come raid some other town and take all their stuff. That just keeps happening over and over again in these chapters. So for Nabal, for a long period of time, nobody has come and bothered him because David and his troops are living close by. So when Nabal has this big festival, this big feast, David sends messengers down and says, can we come eat with you? Essentially, we've protected you. Let's, you know, honor shame culture here. I honored you. Will you honor me? And Nabal says, who's David? He dismisses the messengers. When the message gets back to David, David says, everyone strap on your sword. They're going to go to fight against their own nation's people because they offended King David. One of Nabal's servants runs to tell Nabal's wife, Abigail, about the offense, and she springs into action. She quickly gathered an enormous amount of food for 600 people, loaded it all on donkeys, and headed out to intercept David because she knew he was going to be offended and come to attack Nabal. What we get in chapter 25 is this remarkably courageous picture of a woman who is willing to go intercept an entire army essentially by herself. I mean, she's got servants, but she's the one that gives the speech. When she meets David, she falls down on the ground in front of David and gives a beautifully humble and yet incredibly bold speech to the soon-to-be king of Israel about why he should not kill Nabal, about why he should not go through with his plans. She's coming to convince him to stop doing this. How does she do that? What, what's, her, what's her reasoning? Well, the, phrase, the, the, way she, the, the main point of her message there is that she told him, you don't want the grief and the guilt of shedding the blood of your own nation's people by trying to work salvation with your own hands. That's the phrase she uses two times in chapter, tw- in chapter 25, verse 26 and 31. She says, saving with your own hand and 31, working salvation himself. And then David repeats those phrases back to her in his repentance in verse 33. He says, blessed be you, you have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. And if you're holding a different translation of the Bible, many of them say vengeance or revenge. But the word literally is salvation. And is most often used in the Old Testament for God saving a people from an attacking enemy. He's saying, you kept me from trying to save myself. That's what David is acknowledging. So as you consider David's time in exile and what it looks like to live faithfully while we are on the run, while we are sojourners, while we are passing through this world... We're called to holiness, we're called to righteousness, and we're called to trust God enough, trust our sovereign God enough that you don't try to work your own salvation. Trust our sovereign God enough 
that you don't try to work your own salvation. David almost takes vengeance, takes salvation in his own hands to try to accomplish this on his own. But this courageous Abigail stops him and points out what his sin might cost him. It could have cost him his future as king. Can you just imagine what everything, the rest of human history would have been like had David gone through with this sin? If he had been known for killing one of a, a, a tribe, he, probably, he said he was going to come and kill every man, not just, just, not just Nabal, but every man. If he had come and killed his own people, a whole village worth of men, would Israel have ever gotten behind him as king? Would he have given away his entire kingship over being offended for not having lamb chops? Right? He was, that's what was on the line here. And not just David, but all of his sons, his descendants who would reign on the throne, and the Messiah who was promised to come through his line. That's what's on the line. You have to, you have to think back to, to Jacob and Esau. Esau giving up his birthright for a pot of stew. David almost did that. He almost gave up everything for some lamb, one time at a festival. What does this tell us about who God is? What, what incredible mercy and grace God has to send somebody to intercept him that he would repent of his sin. If David had been aware of who God is, he would not have been tempted this way. If you sit down in one sitting, and I encourage you to do this, and read chapter 21 all the way to chapter 30, one of the, and, you, and then ask yourself, what, what does this tell me about God? One of the main things you're going to see is how incredible God's sovereign hand is through all of this. You, you can make a list much longer than this, but all the ways God was at work providing and protecting and orchestrating events. Now, you, you would come to this and be like, I wouldn't have done it that way if I was God. Surely there was a simpler path. Surely there was a different way. So you wouldn't necessarily say, I would do it this way. But you can't miss that God's in control. God provided David with bread and a sword right as he leaves exile. God protected David multiple times in enemy territory, including when he went to Gath. If you know that city name, that's where Goliath is from. David showed up in Gath and came out with his life. Are you kidding me? Like the people who are Goliath's people, they let David go? Only God could have let that happen. God kept answering David's prayers over and over again. David prays and inquires of the Lord for direction, and God answers him. One time when Saul's army was really close to capturing David, they were just on the other side of the mountain. And it, so they're like closing in. They're about to overtake David and all his men. And it just so happens that a messenger arrives to Saul's camp and says, the Philistines are attacking us. And Saul has to stop pursuing David to go and attack the Philistines. Who's in charge of this? God is. Do you ever wonder how David and this accompanying soldier were able to stand in Saul's tent and have a theological discussion about whether to kill him while he didn't wake up or any of the other people around him? We read 1 Samuel 26, 12, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. If God is in charge of the sleep of David's enemies, don't you think David should trust God to be in charge of salvation? Don't you think we should trust God to be in charge of all things? We can get tempted to rush ahead of God, to try to be God, to try to do the things that we think God should do, and not let God be God. 
He is the one in charge of salvation. He is the one in charge of vengeance. God says vengeance is his. He will repay. We are not the ones to work vengeance and, and, and to bring retribution for all the ways we've been wrong. That's God's job. He will. He's in charge. We are not the ones to try to work everything out just perfectly. God calls us to go and to do and to work, but it takes discernment sometimes that we just rest and trust that God's going to work this out. You know what happens to Nabal? The next morning, he's drunk when all this happens with his amazing wife, goes and rescues his people. The next morning, Abigail tells Nabal what happens, and it says he turns to stone. It's like, a rev- like the backwards from what Ezekiel says when we get saved. Right? He goes from having flesh to turning to stone, and 10 days later, he dies. God takes care of it. His name means fool, and he proves that he is a fool. And he's meant to be a mirror here of Saul, of his arrogance and his pride. God will take care. We don't have to go out and chase every arrogant person and tell them all the things that they're wrong about, right? God's in charge. But there may be times that we are tempted to rush ahead and box God in and say, God, I know this is what you want, and I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it. But God's bigger than our minds, bigger than the boxes we can draw. We can trust Him even when it doesn't make sense to us. I think there's a foretaste of what Christ did here in 1 Samuel. When Jesus came to earth and He began telling people that the kingdom of God was near, what could they have thought except for Rome, this foreign enemy, arrogant empire, is going to be overthrown and Israel is going to be returned to its former glory? Surely that's what Jesus meant, so they thought. Picture the night before Jesus is crucified and as they come to get him, Peter draws a sword. And instead of, chop, like David, chopping off the corner of the robe, Peter goes and chops off a servant's ear. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, shall I not drink the cup given to me? Cup representing the wrath of God. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to go to the cross. The disciples were thinking, how could this be? We will fight. We will beat these evil Romans. We will overcome them. But Jesus was telling them essentially what Abigail was telling David. Don't try to work your own salvation. Trust God is bigger than this. The options before the disciples on the night before Jesus was crucified is not either let Jesus die and we lose or use our sword and fight off these guys and we win. They reduced it to two options. But God's a lot bigger than the little box the disciples could draw. Jesus says, wait, trust God, be patient. He has a plan. Sit back, be faithful, obey, listen, and wait, and let God be God. Jesus the next day was crucified outside the city. Jesus was exiled. He was sent away from the city center, out into the wilderness. And he died and went into the exile of all exiles, which is the grave. But that wasn't the end. Jesus was willing to be a sojourner. He was willing to be in exile. He was willing to be put outside the camp so that you and I could be brought in. You and I could be brought home. You and I could be brought to a place of rest and peace and joy forever. That's what Jesus offers us. But if we're trying to accomplish it on our own, we would never get there. We would never get there. The problem is, even if we know that promise, Sometimes it's not getting here fast enough, is it? Heaven's not coming soon enough. We pray, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. And yet it's another Monday morning, and another one, and another one. And we keep waiting for God to show up. And sometimes while we're walking in exile, 
waiting for God to bring the salvation, waiting for God to work it all out, we get overwhelmed. We get discouraged. God, I've been holy. I've been trying to do the right thing. I'm not perfect. I've been messing up, but I've been trying to follow you in righteousness. I've been trying to trust you. I've been trying to wait, but here I am again, and you're not showing up. One of the last things you'll notice in David's times of ex- after exile is that things get worse for him, even after his obedience and not killing Saul. Sometimes we think, I, I did the right thing. It's supposed to get better, but it doesn't. After, after letting Saul go the second time, David has to flee the country. He just knows Saul's not going to give it up, no matter what he says. So he gets to the land of the Philistines, and they give him the land in a, in a town called Ziklag. But there's a trade-off. The Philistines expect David to go to battle with the Philistines to fight off the next enemy. The problem is the Philistines' next enemy is Israel. So they expect David and his men to come fight against David's home country. They've put him in a tough situation. But they show up to battle, kind of unsure of what's going to happen. They're preparing for battle against their own country. And God, again, in his sovereignty, intervenes. And the Philistines, some of the lords are like, we're not going into battle with David because he might turn on us in the middle of this battle. So they send him back home. And while the David and his troops were away, while they had come to, to the battle lines, the almost, almost unthinkable happens. They had come into the, to the land of the Philistines and Ziklag with their wives and their kids. And when they get back home to Ziklag, another nation, another warring, warring nation had come in, captured their wives, all their kids, and burned their entire town to the ground. They've been in exile for years. David's been pursuing God. He hasn't been perfect, but he's been trying to do the right thing. He's been trying to honor God. He's trying to live righteously. And yet this feels like the worst of the worst. How could this be? 1 Samuel 30 verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Can you imagine that? David and 600 men showing up and everything's gone, including their kids and their wives. In verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. David, we've, we've followed you for all these years and now look what it has cost us. Now look where we are. It doesn't seem like you get any worse than this. But verse 6 continues and says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord. You know what? Sometimes God shows up and the miracle happens right on time, right in the way you want it. And sometimes it doesn't. And you know what? Whether the miracle shows up or not, God is still right there with you. Right there with you. Caitlin read from Psalm 139. There is no place you can go where God is not. You may feel like He's not with you. You may feel like it's the lowest of lows, but God is with you. So while you're waiting in exile, while you're pursuing righteousness, while you're trying not to earn your own salvation and work your own salvation, while you're trying to trust, it's good news to know you can also find strength today in the Lord as you wait. Find strength in the Lord as you wait. This phrase actually happens one other time in this period of exile where David in chapter 23 has just escaped a village and Saul's coming out to chase him. In 1 Samuel 23, 15, we read this. David was in the wilderness of Zephah and Horish and Jonathan, 
Remember Jonathan? And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. David is on the run. He is struggling. And his best friend risks his life to come out and find David and says, God is with you. You have to know that that day when David had just felt like he lost everything, the wives, the children, the town's all gone. He remembered Jonathan. He remembered other people. And he found strength in the Lord. He says, God's going to keep his promises to you, David. God is still with you. Find strength in the Lord because he is with you. That is the last recorded time that David and Jonathan get to meet. There may have been others, but by the Bible, that's the last time they talk. Jonathan will later lose his life in the battlefield. But he risked it once more to show an encouragement to David. While you wait, while you pursue holiness, while you seek after the Lord, know that God is with you. And may God's presence be a strength to you while you wait. Sometimes God uses a friend. I pray God surrounds you with people, with community, with others who can lift you up on days when you're discouraged, when you feel like you're all alone. But friend or no friend, God is still with you. God is there with you through it all. And He will give you strength. Go back to the basics. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship. may not be instantaneous, but it is simple. God is with you, and He will encourage you. Just because you've got to know there's a good ending to that story, God does bring the strength to David. They pray and say, God, are we going to be able to to win this battle? Are we going to be able to find these guys? And sure enough, God in His incredible sovereignty sends them out. Miraculously, they find them, wipe out that people, get all their wives and kids back. And yet they're still in exile because Saul's still king. But at least they got their kids back. God is sovereign. We don't always know why He does, what He does, when He does, how all that works. But while we're waiting... We're called to faithfulness, we're called to holiness, we're called to trust, and we're, called, we're, we're encouraged that we can find strength in Him while we wait. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Jesus, who was willing to be exiled so that we can be brought home. God, for all those here who do know You, who have a relationship with You, God, we, we look forward with great hope, with great joy with great anticipation to the day we get to be home forever and ever with you. God, what, what an encouragement that is to us even now as we look forward to that day. But God, we'll confess there are many times where we get tired of waiting. We're tempted in sin while we wait. We're tempted to try to appease our own desires while we wait. And so God, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you'd keep us in holiness, keep us humble, keep us pure, Keep us pursuing after you. We know that's only going to come if we do truly trust that you are God, you are good, you're in control. God, thank you for meeting with us day by day, for strengthening our hands, for not leaving us alone, but for building us up. God, for those who may be here who do not yet know you, God, may your goodness, may your grace, may your power, may your love have been made evident today in your word. God, for those who don't know you, may they, may they see how great you are and that there's none better than you. God, may they turn from their sins. May they put their faith in you. 
And may all of us trust in you today. That no matter what's going on, you're with us. You're in control. And we can follow you. I ask all this only by the power and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.